Hi, I'm Izzy. And I'm Marina, and we are the hosts of eConnect Talks. On this podcast, we'll be interviewing pioneers in the climate and environmental movement. From small to big players and everything in between, no matter what industry or walk of life, everyone has their part to play in helping shape our future into a wonderful one. We are very excited to learn more about the lives and visions of our guests and share them with our eConnect community. So sit back, relax, and get ready to join us in some interesting chats with people doing fascinating things. We hope you enjoy. We are very excited to welcome today to speak with us, Dr. Jessica Tillette. Dr. Jessica Tillette is an award-winning professor of behavior and social sciences. With a PhD from Harvard in sociology, her academic research has focused on diversity and inclusion, as well as teaching seminars on kindness, empathy, and compassion. Today, she works as a senior specialist for diversity, equity, and inclusion for the NGO Innovations for Poverty Action. Dr. Tillette also has a wealth of experience teaching courses in research methods, diversity and cross-cultural understanding, race, gender, education, communication skills, and behavioral sciences. On a recent Fulbright grant to conduct research in Madrid, her dissertation investigated immigration policy, immigrant integration, and intergroup relations. We were wondering to start off as a professor in behavioral science, could you first of all, please explain a bit about what this area of study focuses on for our audiences who might not know? Yeah, so behavioral science is basically the study of human behavior. We look at and try to understand why people make the decisions that they make. And as a field, we're dedicated to thinking across disciplinary lines. So we're psychologists, sociologists, political scientists, economists, so we come from a broad range of you know, disciplinary thinking with the objective of helping people make better decisions to live longer, happier, healthier lives. And that's kind of how I would describe behavioral science in a nutshell. Sounds fascinating, thank you. And secondly, in your opinion and drawing from your studies, do you think that the climate crisis for many has been a difficult or too large of an issue to grasp? And if so, how would you advise people to feel more empowered as opposed to feeling powerless? Yeah, I mean, I think in the field of behavioral science, we talk about something called a bias, which is just basically um, a human condition that allows us to think or see things in a certain way. So when we are aware of what our biases are, we can actively choose to make different decisions. So when I think about um, climate change or the climate crisis, I think of kind of two biases that impact our decision-making abilities. And the first is something called the status quo bias. So a lot of times when something is just the way that it is, we're used to that, it's comfortable, it's hard to make change. So what the climate crisis is asking us to do is change our behaviors. And sometimes that can be overwhelming and difficult, right? And then another kind of bias that I think we face when we think about the climate change and climate crisis situation is, is choice overload. So there's so many different things that you can do to help or to get involved that sometimes you look at all the options and you're like, never mind, I'm going to do nothing. Right. And so it ends up leading you to just kind of be paralyzed. And I think, you know, if I take the lessons that I've learned from the field of behavioral science, I would say that, you know, starting with something small, like something that you really care about, if your issue is animals, then you can think about getting involved in eating less meat or recycling, if that's your thing. Like, so pick something, pick something small and 
don't have this expectation of just changing the world in one day, right? You start with your small thing, you build a community, maybe you find someone who can keep you accountable to what you're going to do. So I'm not quite ready to go vegan, but I do think that I can reduce my meat consumption. Like who's going to be in it with me to learn more recipes that are vegetarian and vegan friendly, right? These kind of small decisions that you can make and over time you can build. And so that keeps you from this paralysis that we were talking about of just being like, oh, it's too overwhelming. Yeah. And I think so many people feel that way. It's, you have to bring such a big problem, you know, sort of back down to, to earth and everyone's reality is so different. Mm-hmm. And you also taught several courses on social justice and cross-cultural understanding. Could you tell us a little bit more about what these yeah, were about? I think depending on where in the world you come from or where you work or what you do for fun, I think your idea of diversity and inclusion and cross-cultural understanding can be very limited. Obviously, in the United States, where I'm from, we have to talk about race a lot because we have race issues. And that was kind of in the forefront last year with the George Floyd murders and thinking about Black Lives Matter and these kind of issues that are raising race as a front and center. But one thing that was really cool about my job at IE, where I put together this course about thinking about social justice and cross-cultural understanding, was that we come from a very international student body. I know that you know, we all come from different places. Maybe our mom is from here and our dad's from here. We speak this language at school. We speak this language at home. So kind of trying to condition us to think about all the ways in which diversity matters and how we can bring together interesting and unique identities to uh, better understand one another and be able to contribute in our schools, in our jobs, in our volunteer places, et cetera, et cetera. Is it commonly known and a pressing issue that developing it is commonly known, sorry, and a pressing issue that developing countries and the poorest communities in the world are the least responsible, and yet they will continue to feel the largest burden and be disproportionately affected in terms of the climate catastrophes. How, in your view, could more developed countries help lessen this load? Yeah, so I tend to try to be an options friend. And I think a lot of it is about doing some of the things that we're already doing. So for example, my organization, Innovations for Poverty Action, we're research and policy nonprofit dedicated to the eradication of global poverty. And so a lot of what we do is we go into developing countries that could be suffering from climate catastrophes or really radical uh, shifts in lifestyle due to climate change. And we do experiments to see, you know, what are some ways that we can help get these communities out of out of poverty? And I think for me, one of the keys of being able to have the resources and being able to be mobile in these kind of spaces is to help these countries build capacities. So give them skills, give them tools, give them resources to be independent and autonomous and farm their own land and yield their own natural resources, right? So I think rather than going in there and extracting, what we could be doing is we could be investing in them and that can look a lot of different ways. Um, So that kind of would be my main suggestion is don't just go there to take away from them, but give them tools, give them resources, give them opportunities to kind of really invest in themselves so that the kind of aid that a lot of organizations are giving, which is great, they don't need it so much, right? Yeah. I totally agree. Long term sustainability and support rather than short term solutions, I think, is is the way. Yeah. Yeah. And exactly like keeping also the natural resources there, uh, I think, is is important for, you know, the developing countries to really hone in on, you know, uh, on their own growth and their own path and 
foreign or Western countries helping in forms of impact investment rather than the last, you know, 200 years of a, or more of extractionism. So your dissertation focused on immigration policy. Predictions show that certain places will become uninhabitable due to the climate crisis. How do you think people and governments should adapt their immigration policies to cater to an uncertain future? Yeah, so this is a really good question because I think the the future looks uncertain in a lot of different ways. So part of it is about the climate crisis, but there's a lot of things that make life uncertain. There's a war in Afghanistan that just ended that the US was deeply involved in. There's COVID. There's a lot of ways in which we can see uncertainty can be driving decisions to migrate. But for me, and I think what the core of my research and my studies have really shown me is that we need to be thinking about how we can live with different cultures in the long term. So we need to be able to accommodate multicultural societies in ways that the United States in some ways has been super successful and in other ways has failed. You know, there's a lot of countries that I have lived or studied or worked in in Europe and the United States that we think about them as models for multiculturalism. And I think the way that we can long-term sustain what will be the effects of migration is building countries, raising children that are open-minded, that have the capacity to help immigrants build skills and get the things that they need to get on their feet so that they can be making the kinds of contributions that we know that they can make. So a lot of times we think immigrants are just here coming to take our jobs. But if we think about immigration that is motivated by something like climate catastrophes or arid land or, you know, inability to live in your home country, I'm sure that these people would rather live in their own country, right? So it's not just that they love to come and freeload up off of people, it was out of necessity. And they have skills and experiences and, you know, professions that they're leaving behind in their country. So if we can give them some tools, whether it's linguistic or some financial support, some temporary housing to kind of get them into our countries, help them land on their feet and they will be more than happy to, you know, be a doctor in the US if they came from Afghanistan. You know, it's not like they want to take all the jobs. It's like, we want to do what we're good at. We want to do what we like and everyone can make a contribution. And I know it sounds naive and kind of optimistic, but I really know that my work is committed to this idea of living together and creating multicultural plural societies where we can learn from one another and grow from one another and make sure that we're looking out and it doesn't matter where you were born, right? That's kind of my philosophy. Yeah, and I think it's, we often forget, you know, that there is a sort of sadness that comes to leaving your country and sort of going with an idea that you're not coming back, right? Like migration has a toll on the person as well. They're not coming just, you know, in with a hopeful, like there's, there's an acceptance that, you know, you can't go back to your country. And that is already a, a, a big baggage. That's a big decision to make. And con- other, let's say, the um, adoptive countries should acknowledge that that's, you know, very courageous and very difficult in the first place. Sure. Mm, absolutely. And always leading with empathy and kindness and compassion and aiming to treat each other as kin and neighbors and how we would want to be treated ourselves. And often 
invariably those who have been driven to become refugees come from incredibly difficult and traumatic circumstances and seek refuge and safety far away from their homes. And the least we can offer is love and protection and support and hope. But um, on a slightly different note, do you think um, at the moment that we are doing enough to enable the discourse about the environment to be fully intersectional? Yeah, I think that's, I have to think about it in terms of my own work, right? So I'm a scholar of race and I would say that I have had very few meaningful conversations with colleagues about environmental racism, for example. So a lot of times in academia, we talk about how academics are you know, in one corner and policymakers are in another corner and the way that we're thinking about solutions to global problems that we all think are important are often happening in parallel rather than in conversation. So I think my answer would be no. Um, but I also want to acknowledge that you know, outside of what my small world of research and academia, there's a bunch of people who are learning about the environment through these kind of networks that they belong to, sometimes political leanings or kind of social thinking that they that they are a part of. And uh, we know the danger of misinformation, of kind of living in these bubbles where you're not getting access to the truth. So I think, you know, having conversations like this or and opening the dialogue of saying like, hey, there are people missing from the table when we're talking about how to address these big global issues. I think that's important of just kind of making sure that we open them up and we do our part. And I, and I think our conversation like what we're having today is a good start for that. And the mental health crisis and the climate crisis seem to be very correlated. Given your expertise in social behavior, how would you advise people of all ages to deal with eco-anxiety? Yeah. Oh, I love talking about mental health because I feel like that's kind of like my side thing that I, I figured out. Yeah, when you have gone through mental health issues, I've suffered from my own anxieties about the environment, but about so many other things. And I think, you know, not to keep coming back to the current state of affairs, but I just see society in general just being more anxious these days. And so I love talking about the tools that have worked for me um, and how I'm able to kind of overcome my own anxieties and acknowledging that the eco-anxiety that we might have is probably coupled with what is happening in the world? Why are we still in the pandemic? So many other kinds of questions that might be on our mind, right? So I think my best advice is like, listen to your body. Our bodies are very smart and they often ask us for what they need. So sometimes it's saying, okay, slow down. You've been virtual working for too long and you keep watching on the news that all these bad, terrible things are happening and you might be an empath like me. So you might be asking to slow down. You might be asking for connection or community, connection with nature, right? If you have eco-anxiety, you're like, oh my God, the earth is falling apart. Go in nature and see that it's still there, that it's been standing there for thousands of years. And that if we do the things that we need to do, that it will continue to be there, right? Have conversations, reach out to people who support you, who, who might understand you, your friends, your family, your therapist, get a therapist if you need one, right? So I like to talk about things and externalize, but my best advice is listen to what you need and ask for what you need and go get what you need, right? Because doom scrolling down Instagram and your eco blog about all the fires going on in the world is not healthy and it's not going to help you, right? So listen to your body and kind of do the things that you need to do to, to feel well, but also do your part. 
Because I think a lot of times once you start to get involved in the movement and you feel proud of yourself for the things that you're able to contribute, then it helps to reduce your anxieties in some sort of way. So that could be my, my suggestion is kind of listen to what you need and do something because that will help you kind of alleviate some of this anxiety about where all we're going with, with the environment. Yeah. Feel, feel empowered versus feeling powerless. Constantly. Mm -hmm. In a time of, of growing alternatives and options to navigate our lives, how do you think this might improve our chances of creating a more sustainable world? Is there increasing pressure on corporations and governments by consumers to act on the climate crisis and make being eco-friendly more accessible? So I definitely think that today there's a lot more consciousness about the climate crisis. I think we're having conversations in an open way that in schools, in political spaces, in the news where we're saying like, here are some examples of the kind of gravity of the situation. Um, what are you gonna do to, to do your part? And so there's this kind of opening of the conversation has allowed us to actually put the pressure on these com companies and organizations. So we have global organizations who have sustainability officers who are thinking about making their particular organization more sustainable or connecting to the environment through the corporation in some sort of way. We also have brands and actually very successful, <laughs> huge global brands that are really based around this idea of you know, helping to make the world more sustainable. Everything from eco fashion or even brands like Zara that aren't necessarily eco-friendly have sustainable brands or um, food type of products like Beyond Meat or something where you can think about how there's companies, oat milk is one of my favorite examples because it's just like the rise of milk alternatives in the past 10 years has been exponential. So in some ways it's like, hey, even the, the companies that sell milk from cows are creating oat milk, soy milk, et cetera, alternatives, right? So there's absolutely this kind of pressure. And I think the alternatives are helping us to, to push us because even though we might be paralyzed by all the options that we have, no one can say that there's not other options, right? So I love milk so much. What am I going to eat? Well, here's 10 other things that you can decide, taste each of them and let me know which one's the best, right? So that's what I would say. Yeah, exactly. We've been talking about that a lot lately about how even last year, you know, saying you were vegan or talking about um, these different types of dietary alternatives or different consumer choices, almost, you know, still only last year seemed like a little bit alternative and now becoming so much more mainstream and accessible, which is really encouraging. Um, and so I think that will just keep happening exponentially. Yeah, and slowly it's sort of the dubbed the green economy. It seems to be, you know, gaining more attention. And even though you have, you know, some players that are just, you know, in it for the marketing. I had a phone call with a, a sustainability officer for a, a, a big e-commerce and she's part of their marketing department. I was like, that's very interesting. <laughs> you know, you sometimes the intention can be good. But nowadays, even I think overall, the fact that being or pretending to be green is considered marketing is already a good sign in that, you know, every, you know, a lot of people's choices are changing. And so companies are following suit. 
Speaking of that, uh, we often speak about you know, in the environmental sector about over overhauling the current system, that it's supposed to be system change uh, and not climate change, right? So often it feels as though we are fighting against our own governments and global leaders. What right now or in the past has inspired you in terms of people fighting against the status quo to improve society? Well, I think... <laughs> If you're just listening on a podcast, you might not be able to see what I look like, but I'm a Black American woman. And so I feel like in some ways fighting against the status quo is just in my blood. I come from a family where we knew it wasn't just our right, but our responsibility to advocate on behalf of ourselves and our community. So I think, you know, that thread has kind of followed through in the work that I do, my research on immigration, my role, my current role in diversity, equity, inclusion, it's kind of like, I feel strongly connected to fighting for what's right and advocating, advocating for people who don't have their own voice, right? So I don't know what, what inspires me. I don't, I think it's just in me. I think it feels like it's my calling. And it's my destiny in the same way that some people feel that they're born to be a doctor, right? Or born to be an engineer. I don't know. It's just in me. So I think I'm inspired by the legacy of my ancestors who overcame really difficult circumstances for me to get to where I am today. Um, and I'm inspired by th this idea of solidarity, of just lifting people up. Um, you speak about adaptability a lot um, and creating solutions to help us make better decisions. How can we apply this and um, these ideas to prepare students for a seemingly precarious future equally collectively with the various crises we are facing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the students are the ones that are teaching me. Like, we really do come from different generations and I don't feel old by any means, but I think adaptability and learning how to do things and adjust to different circumstances is something that this current generation will do better than me or my parents or my grandparents, right? I grew up in the age of internet and I'm like, I can go to www and find something, but my two-year-old niece can open an iPad and like find games and do all these kind of things. So we can adapt to technological changes. We can adapt to what the pandemic asked of us with the quarantine and, you know, changing our hobbies and the way that we socialize. So I feel like more than anything, that's not something that I'm teaching so much as something that I'm learning. Right. And um, what, how do you learn to be more adaptable? You equip yourself with as much information and perspectives and viewpoints as possible. So, you know, read from the political leaning that is not your own and see what they're saying, because it helps you understand why someone might think that way, right? Um, buy the book that your friend recommended, read the labels on your food, like get informed, because I feel like that's what keeps me being able to, you know, engage in conversations and have a, an opinion and a perspective about things that you know, maybe you wouldn't expect of me because I have this particular role or I came from this country or this upbringing, right? So be informed, kind of look around you and see what other people are doing and, and model after the ones that you like and learn as much as you possibly can. And that's such a teachery, professory thing to say, but I mean, I bet my students would have a better answer. <laughs> And, and going sort of on the same thread, what's the best advice you've ever been given? 
And what advice would you give to our audiences? Mm. There's so much good advice out there. Um, I like one that my dad told me. So my dad passed away a few years ago, but my dad was a, a, a poet. So every, often his advice would come in the form of poetry. And so one of his pieces of advice was yard by yard, everything is hard, but inch by inch, it will be a cinch. And so if you use the metric system, which I'm imagining, I don't know why in the US we don't, you are like, what's a yard in an inch? But basically the idea is like, you know, looking at a big project or a big objective and thinking that you have to tackle it all in one sitting or just looking at it as the whole thing can feel really overwhelming. But when you kind of break it down into digestible bites and small goals and small objectives, like we can do anything, right? So I feel like when we're having this conversation about what is our pirate, how do we overcome eco-anxiety? How do we deal with trying to do this when it seems like it's, everything's out of control is take some small thing and do it and do it well and do it with people who you care about and show other people how to do it. So this idea of inspiring change often comes from a small little thing that you, that you do, right? And that comes from feeling passionate about something, feeling inspired by someone or something. And so I like that little poem in the back of my head when I think about how hard it can be to start a new project or to, you know, fight racial injustice. It's just like, it's not something that I'm going to step into on a Monday morning and be like, I got it. It's like, what is the little thing that I can do today? What's the conversation that I could have with the person that said something that was racially insensitive? What's the recipe I can give my friend who thinks that steak is the only thing delicious on the planet? These are the ways that I think that we can make impact. And that's how I think, you know, if we all do our little part, then we'll make a big, big difference. And so that would be my advice. Every inch by inch. Yeah, I'm going to remember that. (laughs) Every little bit helps and planting those seeds gradually. Jessica, final question. What are the things right now in your life or the world that excite you and bring you hope? So many things. And that's good. And I, I've, I've already said before that I, I try to be an optimist because otherwise the news and life and everything can get you down. Right. So I think, you know, one of the things about being a teacher and being an auntie and being a global traveler is that I get to see so many of the exciting things that people are doing. So I think right now I would say I'm really inspired by our youth and how outspoken and action oriented that, that we are. I think, you know, I was talking about my ancestry and my parents and my grandparents and stuff. So my parents' generation was fighting against the Vietnam War. They were fighting for racial justice. They were doing sit-ins and walkouts and protests. And I feel like kind of in between, we got a little complacent with the way that things were. And now we're seeing people protesting. We're seeing a little girl from Sweden, you know, be the face of the climate crisis. And this is so beautiful because it's just this kind of renewed sense of a cycle of passion for and commitment to being the change that you want to see in the world. And so I think as an educator um, and a teacher, seeing my students who get really inspired by their projects and seeing teenagers and little kids doing things that we never thought were fathomable, that makes me excited. That brings me hope. I think I'm excited by the possibilities coming out of the pandemic for greater human connection. I feel like 
the, this time period in our lives has been so difficult, but employers and individuals are, are being more empathetic and understanding the difficulties that we all face. And we all feel connected because it's not like the pandemic just hit one country or an island. It was like, we've all had to go through this. So I'm excited about how I can imagine the next generation of empathy looking and feeling like, and our potential for greater human connection. And so those are sort of the things that I think keep me motivated to do the work that I'm doing and bring me a lot of hope for what will happen even after I'm gone. And I think oftentimes, particularly when talking about you know, the climate crisis, it's so easy to be pessimistic, but in the grander scheme. And when you look at you know, social justice, probably in the history of humanity, um, that that we're becoming a more fair and equal society just compared to 20, 30, 50, you know, obviously a thousand years ago. Um, so it's in a way very hopeful for, for the future, right? Just in how, um, how looking at, at younger generations and how empathetic and you know, how open-minded we are versus one generation before so it really if you put things into perspective it is the best time in history um it's just and it's empowering to feel well it's time to heal the earth yeah and there's always hope always hope and i agree we've got to be optimists <laughs> um we we try and be optimists too <laughs> Um, Jessica, thank you so much for coming on. It's been really interesting and fascinating listening to your your thoughts and your wisdom. Um, so thank you for taking the time to, to join us. Lovely. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for this project. Thank you guys for the work that you do. Um, I'm talking about you when I talk about the youth who can inspire change. So um, keep at it and um, keep me posted. Yes. We Definitely. Will. Thank you so much for joining. Really, yeah. we truly, truly appreciate it.